This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable! Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely and control vehicle at all times. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Total Saints podcast, your weekly pod going to the heart of all things Saints FC. While it's been relatively quiet off the pitch in and around St Mary's, there's been plenty happening on it, with Saints following up last week's hard-fought 3-0 draw with a visit to the south coast of tabletoppers Everton. The clash between ourselves and the Toffees actually ended in sticky fashion for Carlo Ancelotti's side, however, as Saints were comfortable 2-0 winners. To help me reflect on all that, it's Steve Grant, owner of Saints Web and the Athletics' Dan Sheldon. Evening, chaps. Evening. Evening. You both doing all right? Yeah, it's been a good one, hasn't it? It has, it has, it has. And, uh, yeah, Dan, just briefly, we uh, we didn't do any ad-lib chat last week, so I feel like we should do some this week. But uh, how's your week been? Obviously, there was a a good couple of pieces in uh, The Athletic around Shea Adams, and uh, obviously we'll come on to talk about him in a little while. And uh, I think you did that piece around who and how can get in the centre-back, so it's been a busy week for you. Yeah, yeah, fairly busy. I mean, I must admit, I... I was quite happy today. You know, you always write these things and, you know, I'd never, ever tell Che Adams how to be a striker. Um, you know, he knows a lot more than that than I do. But I just, you know, I watched clips and clips and clips and clips of him and you just got the sense that, you know, had he, if he just took a, an extra touch every now and then that, you know, he'd score an awful lot more goals. And today, you know, he took an extra touch and then another one and then managed to, to score. So, you know, you get a little bit lucky with the timing of those things, you know, be easy to sit here and say, yeah, it was great. You know, he read it, blah, blah, blah. But I don't think that was the case at all. Um, I was going to say, you claimed an assist. <laughs> no, I was say, well, yeah. we mentioned it on the pod last week as well. So I was thinking probably between those two things, Danny's done it. I mean, maybe you could write a piece this week, Dan, on Saints winning the 2020-21 Premier League and you never know, it might come true. Yeah, well, I mean, I did. I think I wrote about Alex McCarthy and then they kept two clean sheets in a row. So, <laughs> I mean, if, if there's anyone... Yeah, yeah. 
you're like so, the uh, no, yeah, no, soothsayer. Thank you. Yeah, brilliant. No, good, good to hear. And Steve, obviously, uh, as every Saints fan will be uh, well aware, we've been consistently reminded today that, uh, of course, it marks one year to the day of that result against Leicester at St Mary's. We'll touch on that briefly, I'm sure. But in Holland yesterday, of course, VVV Venlo went not one, not two, not three, but four worse than us, uh, losing 13-0 to Ajax. So having done this pod for a long time, Steve, I was thinking we'll probably be sending all of our best wishes to Total Venlo podcast for this weekend. Yeah, good luck to them picking the bones out of that. I saw a couple of the clips and it was just like, oh my yeah. goodness, this is an absolute train wreck. It's, it's, it's even better without fans because you can literally hear the Venlo defenders shouting in sort of absolute disgust and disdain at uh, what's going on. <laughs> yeah, just just carnage. I mean, uh, I mean, the, I know the Dutch the Dutch league does tend to have these sort of outlier results a little bit more more regularly than we do. I think Feyenoord beat PSV ten nil, I think, about three or four years ago, and it was and. I mean, you look at that when one when one of the sort of giants of Dutch football is beating another by that sort of scoreline, then kind of eyebrows get raised significantly. But cause I think 13 nil, I think is the, I think that's the, the yeah biggest the record ever top scorer, so that's right, yep, yep. So yeah, I mean that's, that's some effort. some going and. and because I know they because they only went down the ten men sort of mid sort of about ten minutes into the second right. half when it was four yeah. nil. So yeah, I mean that's that's quite a quite an exercise in just chucking the towel in. <laughs> yes, I, I think uh, I may be wrong, but I think the twelfth goal went in in the seventy ninth minute. So fair play, they only let one in in the last eleven minutes. But uh, yeah, joking aside, I think having been there and uh, suffering it, and uh, I know you said about it, Steve. I think the Venlo fans can get ready for everyone reminding of that uh, scoreline for about the next uh, twenty five years probably. But uh, there we go. Let's move on. Um, you'll notice Glenn isn't here uh, tonight um, no I, I promise we've not told him that we're recording at a different time but I do have uh, some good news if he's the main reason that you tune into our pod yes you will still get to hear his dulcet tones on TSP 133 as together with myself Glenn and I had a chat with Saints Managing Director Toby Steele during the week in our latest number two Red and White Insight feature Life Inside Our Club Toby took the time to chat with us both about the financial impact of Covid on the club transfer windows pay-per-view project big picture and more so look out for that a little later on in the meantime we wish Glenn's mum a very happy 75th birthday and he'll be back next week or Thursday evening if you're joining us for our second patrons only event TSP VIP very important patrons finally after discussing Everton and hearing from Toby we'll preview Saints visit to Aston Villa including a great Great way to invest your £14.95 if you don't agree with spending it on PPV for that match. More on that later. I also just quickly want to give a shout out to at Global Saints FC on Twitter. Um, our friends have joined uh, Twitter this week, uh, a global account which uh, is helping to connect Saints fans right around the world. So if you are on Twitter, give them a follow if you're not already, at Global Saints FC. And just finally, before we get going, Nico Caltabiana joined as a patron via patreon.com slash Total Saints podcast this week. So just wanted to say a massive thank you to you, Nico, over in Germany for supporting the podcast along with our other patrons. It's very much appreciated. OK, let's go for it. Underpinned by our wonderful TSP patrons, as I mentioned, and supporting Total totalsaints.co.uk this is Total Saints podcast episode 133 this is the Total Saints podcast with Ben Stanfield Steve Grant Glenn Delacour and the Athletics, Dan Sheldon. 
Saints swept aside the Premier League leaders and only remaining unbeaten side Everton thanks to two goals from James Ward-Prowse and Shea Adams. It was the first time we'd beaten a side top of the table since winning at Anfield in 2013 when a certain Croatian defender, I can't remember his name now or whatever happened to him, scored the winner. And it was also the fourth time in our last five visits of Everton to St Mary's that we'd uh, beaten them. Steve, I'm sure most of the fallout will probably be about Everton not playing well, but to a man... Saints were absolutely superb from start to finish. Yeah, we, we got it absolutely right. It was a quite a slow start to the game, quite methodical. And I think we we were kind of taking a little bit of time just to kind of suss out what Everton were going to do in the absence of Richarlison and Seamus Coleman. And the ultimate answer was basically not very much. And we got once we once we got kind of got to grips with that, we were all over them. Um, missed missed two absolute sitters before we went one nil up. Um, shots from what? barely 10 yards out where we've just not put the, the right yeah, connection on, them, on the ball yeah. and it's and it's um and it's skewed wide and then i think romeo brought out a um a decent save from pickford i mean it was one for the cameras and sky seemed to be desperate to show about five different angles of that so I actually missed the build-up to um what turned out to be the opening goal with ing's lo- lovely little um lovely little through ball for war prowse um to hit it early i do i, I do kind of think that most other goalkeepers in the Premier League would would mm. save that shot mm. though. Can't help can't help but think that Jordan Pickford does seem to make his body smaller in these situations rather than bigger, and um, his arms don't seem to stretch out very far. Um, quite often, it's, all, it's almost like he's a he's a goalkeeping T Rex. <laughs> and then I mean, once we once we got into the lead, really Everton offered basically nothing. They were a complete complete non-entity. Really, there was there was nothing. There was no energy to their game that that we'd seen in in the previous games this season, where obviously the media had been desperate to crown them champions elect in uh, what four or five games into the season. Yeah, I mean it was it was ultimately very very easy, and if anything, we sh- we should probably be a little bit disappointed we've not stuck four or five mm, on them. Yeah, we'll um, focus on the two goals a little bit more in a moment, Dan. But uh, you called the first forty-five minutes quote the best football they've played this season having watched them all season Dan as you have done what was it about that first 45 minutes that you um, enjoyed most well I think I'll go one further now I think that was the the most complete performance I've seen yeah. since Ralph's come in I'm sure people may disagree but I just think you know the first half there was energy they were clinical as you've said to a man they were mm. brilliant I mean I don't think Nathan Redmond had the <laughs> the best first half but I wouldn't want to you know single him out after what was a convincing 2-0 win so you know he improved in the second half and was given man of the match by Sky Sports I think right. they obviously were maybe watching a different <laughs> first half to me and the, and the rest um, of us Dan yeah but no yeah, <laughs> but no, yeah just the, you know the it, just everything about that performance for me was just mm. brilliant Romeo I mean you could literally go from 1 to 11 and just pick out you know they were all just fantastic the defense of course as Steve mentioned you know Seamus Coleman and Richarlison weren't playing so that does limit Calvert-Lewin to a certain extent you know they didn't have that kind of creative spark but you know he didn't do any he didn't have a single shot all afternoon you know he didn't create anything didn't have anything created for himself when you compare that to Danny Ings I think he only had one shot this afternoon but he created two goals so you know one one made things happen the other one didn't Football Vestergaard did a, a brilliant job nullified him in the air at the end of a frustrating afternoon for Calvert-Lewin he ended up getting booked for a challenge on Vestergaard what Kyle Walker-Peters brilliant Romeo as I've said I mean at the moment I think Romeo really is a joy to watch the way he picks the ball up in the tight angles two or three players will surround him and he'll always find a pass I really really like watching Romeo at the moment on this form I don't think Diallo gets mm-hmm. in the team 
because of how good Romeo was playing. Obviously, Prowse got the goal. Not sure what the celebration was about, so I'll have to try no, and find no. that one out. Um, it reminded me of Craig Bellamy and yeah, yeah, and the, the corner flag at Liverpool. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I don't think anything it was anything as serious yeah. as that. I'd like to think. <laughs> so then, yeah, Armstrong came back into the team. Was was good going forward, creative, and then Adam Adams and Ings. You know what a partnership that's proving to be. So yeah, just really really impressed. And in the second half, they had the two 0 lead. They then had the extra man. I thought the game management was just, you know, fantastic. I mean, we've all witnessed Southampton lose leads, but I, there wasn't one part of me today that thought, you know, what they're going to concede in the second half and it's going to be a nervy, nervy finale. You know, they were just composed, calm, mm, brilliant. No. Yeah. Completely agree, Dan, with everything you said there. And uh, yeah, Steve, I mean, you touched on the first goal there. Obviously, it was just before the half hour when uh, James Ward Prowse um, latched onto Danny Ings' lovely through ball and uh, managed to finish past Pickford. I think, uh, you know, as you said there, probably do agree. Uh, it somehow seemed to go through Pickford. But I, I saw an interesting stat on the BBC afterwards, Steve. James Ward Prowse has scored 13 Premier League goals under his current manager, Ralph Hasen, who torn 64 games, three more than he managed in 173 appearances for seven different managers before that. Obviously, it was his first of the season. Great to see him get off the Mark as well but what do you think it is about him and sort of scoring goals under Ralph is it just that you think he's been given more license to sort of get forward and get himself in those positions or has there maybe just been a bit more maturity to his game and maybe the way that he does sort of think about running beyond the strikers and things like that now um I think it's partially both of those actually but also possibly more importantly the fact that he's got a very well-defined role in this mm. team now previously under all the other managers basically they've all liked what they see from him at various points but he's always kind of been a sort of bit of a Swiss army knife type player where they'll whoever's in charge will basically fit him in where we don't have an obvious sort of key player um, if you like so obviously under under previous managers he's played wide right which I mean that's he's not he's not got the pace to play wide right he could, he could obviously put crosses in um, but then you lose you lose you lose out on a lot of other aspects of of his game, and also you're kind of his the defensive side of of his game. I don't think suits playing wide, um, whereas in the middle, I think he, he you obviously have players closer to you, so you get a little you get a little bit more support at times as well. And I think the maturity aspect is is obviously important, obviously, particularly now that he's club captain. He's there's obviously that level of maturity that he feels the response. He's got the responsibility being given to him, but he's also kind of thriving under that, which in previous years, I think if you'd given him, if you'd given him more responsibility, he may well have kind of shirked it a little bit and kind of buckled under the pressure. But I think you're seeing a sort of maturity and kind of developing that, that sort of will to, to be a, to be a genuine top player. Now, I think he's, he's shaken off, in my opinion, he's shaken off the the Mr. Nice Guy old, you know, James is a lovely lad image. And he's also, you know, so he's so always, thanks he's, to Wilson Hart for that. Yeah, and he was always labelled a, you know, a set-piece specialist. And don't get me wrong, he wasn't he has, that great at set-pieces. <laughs> exactly, you know, ex- exactly. Don't get me wrong, his delivery is brilliant. But, I mean, he, yes, he scores the occasional free kick, but they're no buy, like, he doesn't score one every week. So I think that, that's been, Ralph is, like, as Steve said, I think the biggest thing is just, you know, he's got a role now. He's always wanted to play in central midfield. He's, as Steve said, he's not quick enough to play on the right, um, but he's certainly got the energy to play just in front of the defence and bomb up and down the pitch. So, yeah, I think you know Ralph coming in, giving him that clear role. You know, you'll play in this part of the team mm. for me, and he's got that now, isn't he? Like Steve said, you know, he's not had that under the previous yeah. managers. And just on the the second goal, then, I mean, obviously, quite 
historically we've seen Saints maybe score a goal and then sit back and think oh you know we're in the lead and sort of enjoy it whereas actually today they kept pushing you could almost tell that they felt they had the momentum there Dan and uh, Shea Adams got the second goal as you say great work from Danny Ings a, a lovely cross and we did speak about it in the pod last week you did write about it this week I think Steve I saw either commented on our group or Twitter to say Shea Adams almost took too long today but I thought it was interesting everything we've spoken about a bit of composure you know I know Ralph was asked about it in the, the press conference during the week as well but he took his time he took uh, you know composed himself and scored and you know it's great to see him going on a, a run I think that's six goals in his last 12 Premier League games having not scored in 24 before that so again someone that's working really really hard and as we've discussed before starting to get the rewards with goals now 100% I couldn't agree more with kind of how you you've summed that up really you almost started to worry I mean he was doing everything it got to that point again I thought where you know he was doing everything right you know he was creating goals but he just wasn't scoring them and you thought oh please don't be like last season now where you did everything but score because you know we've all, we all saw in Project Restart that when he gets on a run he you know it's almost like that weight just gets lifted off his shoulders and he has the confidence to take another touch maybe and you know actually well, I don't have to lash at this ball and that was again evident evident today you know there's a lovely ball over the top from Ings from the corner sort of on the side of the area and you know he took a touch and then you thought okay he's going to hit it now and then he took another touch and you thought oh you know I mean I guess you could argue either way you know if he hit it first time you'd think well that's that's a guy who's confident you know he's scored last week and you know he wants to go straight for it and chances are you're probably going to beat Pickford anyway because he's not exactly the best goalkeeper but you know to take another couple of touches I think just sort of shows where he's at at the moment in the terms of actually you know if I give myself an extra second or so then I can kind of pick my spot and make sure I, I bloody well hit it and I think you know the point I made I think for me personally you know everyone watches football differently I think when I see like the best strikers you know your Harry Kane's or your Danny Ings is like time seems to slow down a little bit for them inside the area and I, I always just think they always give themselves that extra half a second or second and then bang goal and I think I saw that with Adams today you know just the way he took that goal I know I know it took a slight deflection but it was going I think it would have gone yeah. in anyway I think uh, you're right it's the same sort of thing as in cricket isn't it they talk about you know world-class batsmen almost look like they have extra half a second or something to decide what shot they're going to play and things like that so of course he's a long way from being world-class but I think all of us you know I, I think considering where we were with Shea Adams maybe six months ago on the pod and Saints fans and a bit frustrated and we could have sold him to Leeds and all those sort of things I think it's great to see him uh, doing so well scoring goals and being a, a really good um, you know partner for Danny Ings now because as we said before it takes the pressure off of Danny as well which is great um Steve as you as you sort of mentioned earlier and and Dan did as well you know I maybe as a Saints fan of so many years it, it still felt like a nervous second uh, half I think many of us were there when Marcus Bent made it to all in injury time in the season we got relegated where we should have won and things like that but Saints saw it out professionally you know it was a really really well managed second half as Dan mentioned and um, probably the only key talking point from the second half was uh Lucas Dean's uh, red card which uh, you know he had a few opportunities he loves to, playing at oh, he? I was going to say because he scored an OG down that end before <laughs> didn't he but uh, yeah. yeah I mean can, can, I think Ancelotti tried to defend it and said it was a bit of an accident you know I, I'm not saying it was you know totally needed but I mean he certainly had three or four nibbles at him and in the end it was a pretty distasteful uh, tackle wasn't it so do you think he can have any complaints with it? Um, no but I think I mean I, I think there's you've kind of got a a slight argument i think for people to say it's not a, it's not a straight red card but then you kind of then fall back into the argument well he's still not got any argument because he would have been booked for the for pulling back walker peters about three or four seconds previous and then obviously when he catches him up he then fouls him again so both of those are bookable offenses which the referee would have absolutely been within his rights to to issue two yellow cards at the same time for that so yeah i mean the the only thing he can really complain about, maybe, 
is that he's going to be suspended for two for two extra games. But I mean, it's it's always dangerous looking at uh, looking at fouls and challenges in in hindsight with the benefit of slow motion and freeze frame because it obviously makes it look a whole lot worse um the way that the way that he's obviously trodden on walker peters ankle and it's and obviously it's rolled over and and i mean he could easily have broken his ankle in that situation yeah yeah but it doesn't look i mean obviously you never know what's going through a player's head at any given moment but I mean, the way the way that he fouls him, it didn't look like he was trying to injure him. It, it just was looked, a, yeah. it, it it just looked like one of those so-called professional yellow fouls card where, gone wrong. Yeah, yeah, where you've you've got the wrong side of him, you're desperate, you just you just go and you just go and foul him clumsily and and take the booking. But yeah, as I say, that would that should have been his second booking anyway, even if even if you do downgrade it to a yellow, so he would have been off anyway. Um, so I don't, I, yeah, I mean, Ancelotti's sort of reasoning there is kind of baffling, and I, I think kind of my my impression of him's gone downhill a little bit this week. I thought it was pretty distasteful of him to try and basically use diversionary tactics to get the heat off of Jordan Pickford after his challenge on Van Dyke last yeah. week yeah. by by claiming that um, Van Dyke had actually injured injured Rodriguez in the first minute of the game, and therefore there was some sort of equivalence to this, mm. and then oh. Kel surprise, uh, Hammers Rodriguez is fit to start. Yeah. Um, As you say, I don't think there'll be much sympathy around. No, I mean, I mean, let's let's be honest. That you you'll find much less uh, sympathy for Van Dyke in SO postcodes than you will in pretty much any other part of the country. Yeah. But it's, <laughs> I mean, that sort that sort of conduct. I mean, for for a guy who's who's always been kind of well regarded as as kind of a classy type of manager, that was very much not the case in in this situation. I thought. Well, between Lucas Dean, Dominic Calvert-Lewin and Hammers Rodriguez, my uh, fantasy team between the three of them got one point today, so I think every Saints fan listening will be pleased that I had all of them in my side, because obviously uh, my reverse psychology continues. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, Dan, just on Hammers Rodriguez, um, of course, as Steve says there, there was a bit of sort of mind games, if you want to call it that, during the week that he wasn't potentially going to be available today. He he obviously then made a, a late recovery. Um, I was I was making my notes earlier, and I actually thought, you know what, it was probably good that he did play in the end from a Saints point of view, because we obviously managed him really, really well and there would have been a lot of well you beat Everton but they didn't have Ricarlison they didn't have Hammers, etc etc and uh, you know to have beaten them with him playing and, and have sort of managed him so well hopefully will boost confidence even more and the other thing that I liked and I hadn't really sort of thought of until Ralph was talking about it in his press conference on Thursday was that you know he, he obviously sort of seemed fairly um, unsure whether Hammers would play or not and he said quote you always prepare for the best opposition team so I suppose the other positive I was thinking about Saints had spent all week probably preparing for Hammers to be in the team anyway so it wouldn't have distracted them too much so almost Ralph's managerial experience playing an important part in that yeah I think so and I think you know like you I found that comment interesting you know that the one he made in, in his presser and that just sort of goes to show you know the sort of meticulous detail he looks at you know it would have been easy well not easy because you know you'd all I mean you probably should say you should expect to play the best if Carlo Ancelotti comes out and says oh you know I'm unsure about Hammers then you know, you'd still like to think that, OK, well, we're prepared just in case, you know, he makes a, a late recovery. And I think, you know, as kind of luxury players go, you know, Hammers is the ultimate luxury player, isn't he? I mean, if you keep him quiet, then Everton have got one less player on the pitch, essentially, because he doesn't do anything else. He won't track back or put pressure on the defenders. You know, it's a case of give him the ball and hopefully he'll try and create something. Other than that, he's not kind of doing anything. And I was when I heard that, you know, there was a chance he could miss the game. I was actually disappointed. You know, he's one of the players... You know, he started the season so well. You know, he's played at massive clubs. You know, I was really looking forward to 
come watching him and seeing what he could do and you know I was just left massively disappointed but I think you know credit has to go to the way Southampton kept him quiet for that mm. can, can I just uh, can I just state that I was absolutely not disappointed by his performance <laughs> <laughs> yeah there was uh, a few occasions where I thought yeah it was uh, he was struggling to remember whether he was on the pitch or not but uh, look just to wrap up on Everton a quick couple of questions just to reflect on the, the last sort of 12 months and everything um, Steve in terms of the, the start of the season now Saints have won 10 points from uh, obviously our opening six Premier League games um, it's our best return since this stage in 2014 15 under Ronald Koeman uh, I tweeted earlier about the sort of remarkable turnaround since that scoreline 12 months ago and someone said don't get too carried away and I promise I won't get too carried away Steve but you know that's three wins and four now we're three points off the uh, leaders Everton do you think we're officially in the title race oh definitely well I mean at the end of the day if Everton are in the title race then we are <laughs> and I mean it does it does look as if this season's going to be a weird one the conditions are kind of set up for I mean if, if ever there is going to be another season where some completely random team just 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 go just goes on a run like Leicester did in um in twenty sixteen, then I mean this is this is gonna be the season because you've got obviously the shortened campaign so all the teams in Europe are gonna be are having all their fixtures massively piled up. Players are gonna be getting injured left, right and centre because of because of the shortened preseason they didn't have time to get themselves fit and obviously the condensed nature of everything. Teams that are playing more regularly are gonna have less preparation time. And it, it's gonna mean you're gonna have a lot more sort of random results. I mean Nobody would have predicted um, Villa sticking seven on Liverpool. V- Villa, Villa could barely tie their own shoelaces this time last year, and Liverpool looked uh, like looked like they were they were basically the Harlem Globetrotters and were never going to lose a game of football ever again. And it's and yet you you look at the you look at the situation now, and every single team is vulnerable. And yet and yet there are there are a few teams that you wouldn't you wouldn't expect. That you you look at them and all of a sudden it's like hmm, they've actually got something about them and we we are now one of those teams we've shown that we can obviously we've gone to Chelsea and got um, come from two 0 down to get a result there and to be honest arguably should have won that game and um, with the chances that chances and domination that we had second half I mean we've battered Everton today let's let's be let's be honest we've absolutely torn them to pieces and should have won by four or five I mean who know who knows where this season's going to go now it's 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 stupid season. Yeah. Joking aside, I promise you I'm still thinking 30 more points and we're safe. So uh, there we go. But uh, Dan, just finally, as a sort of neutral, so to speak, as I mentioned, obviously it is the anniversary of that scoreline against Leicester 12 months ago today at uh, day of recording. But since then, Saints have taken 54 points from 34 Premier League games. So 54 out of 102, which is about 1.58 per game. Reflecting on the turnaround as a whole, Dan, since that dreadful Friday night, it seemed to, you know, there was a lot of chat, wasn't there, at the time about pressing the reset button. We know that kind of happened after the Everton game. It was almost, I thought, really appropriate that not only 12 months ago today did we lose that game against Leicester, but it was probably the Everton home game where really were at rock bottom. But everyone at the club, you know, I think deserves a lot of credit for turning it around, not just the players on the pitch, the manager, you know, the boards, everyone in Staplewood, things like that for keeping morale high and a bit of Southampton spirit. And to see Saints where they are now, and of course it is early days, but being up there in the top six and just that turnaround over the last 12 months, um, it's been some effort by everyone at the club. Absolutely. From boardroom to the dressing room, they all stuck together. And, you know, they're reaping the rewards now. It would have been very, very easy. And I don't think many would have been surprised had Ralph lost his job after that Leicester game. I think a lot of managers probably would have lost their job. But, you know, the, the club, the boardroom backed him. You know, they went into the dressing room the following day and said, look, Ralph's staying. If, if any of you want to go, go. But this guy's going to stay. You know, we back him. He's our man. So much credit has to go to Ralph. This is 
pretty much the same players. And it just goes to show, you know, sort of old fashioned coaching on the training pitch and look what he's managed to do. You know, I think he's fed up of the kind of people talking about the Leicester game. You know, I sent a tweet out this morning because I knew what it was going to be like all day. And I just think, you know, I spoke to my editor before the game or a few days before the game when we were discussing possible things we might write about this weekend on the match. And we both agreed that the 9-0 is just, it's almost... It's not irrelevant because it was a big scoreline, but it just it just doesn't matter anymore. Do you know what I mean? That you know that's gone. Um, it's almost like closure now, isn't it? As in, I, I know I know people will carry on talking about it because Ian Dart loves talking about it. But from a Saints point of view, it almost feels like that's the line drawn under it now. Let's look forward and not behind. Ralph doesn't like talking about it. The players don't like talking about it. You know, it happened. It's on their record. That's it. Move on. You know, in ten years' time, it might be interesting. Ten years ago, they lost nine nil. Where are they all now? But you know, for me, that kind of when they ended the season from that point on getting more points than Leicester, you know, in that same period that towards the end of last season, I thought, well, you know, that that's dead then now that's, that's gone. So when it was brought up in the press conference this week, I did have a little chuckle and I think Ralph had a little chuckle as <laughs> well. Did, he thought, he Bloody hell, you yeah. know, how, how well, is he's, still he's, I think he said something up? like, I'm still sat here or something, didn't he? So, yeah. yeah, something along those lines. <laughs> to answer your original question, yeah, absolutely. You know, everyone deserves credit for how they've responded to that result and where they've gone. But the manager will always praise the players, but I think the club have got a very special coach in, in Ralph, so, you know, long may he stay. Yeah. Steve, just before we move on and finish on this, you've got a Roman... Uh acronym that you want to uh, uh, align to the last 12 months right yeah so I, th- I think i mean obviously you have these um sort of period sort of breaks in time don't you where like uh, for example obviously you have many years bc so before christ and then ad anno domini for anything after the year zero so i've looked up the 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 roman name of leicester <laughs> which is um rate Corilatorvorum. Uh, so I think we will we will hereby call the 25th of October 2019 <laughs> the cut off, um, and anything bef- anything before that date is is BR, yep. and anything after that is AR. <laughs> uh, so we are so today is one AR. <laughs> Brilliant. All right, I think that sounds very sensible. Very uh, good work, Steve. And uh, before we move on, just want to say a quick congratulations to Dan and Ludalu on his debut for the club. Okay, it's time for our second Red and White Insight now, featuring Toby Steele, Managing Director at Saints. Here's what Toby had to say when he caught up with Glenn and myself earlier in the week. Total Saints Podcast, Red and White Insight. It's time for the second edition of Red and White Insight, a monthly look at life inside our club through the eyes of the people that work there. We're delighted to say that joining Glenn and myself this time around is Saints Managing Director, Toby Steele. Toby, firstly, welcome to Total Saints Podcast and thank you for agreeing to have a chat with us today. No problem at all. Really nice to uh, to have the opportunity. Thanks, guys. Just before we get going properly, Toby, we're recording a, a few days after the pulsating thrill draw at Stamford Bridge. I, I know you went up there, so have you had time to recover from that? Emotional roller coaster, I think we can call it. Yeah, it was um, it was a really good performance, and yeah, sort of dri- driving back, you know, thinking about various parts of the game. I think first half and you know maybe 25, 30 minutes felt Chelsea really had the the cutting edge, particularly going forward. Um, Burner and, and Habits up front were were pretty frightening to watch, but I think we dealt with them as, as best we can. Maybe controversial second goal with a touching of the arm, uh, the ball hitting the arm, but obviously you know that that was given, and I thought we responded really well. Uh, never let let the heads drop, uh, and definitely deserved you know the, the first goal before half time, 
And yeah, I thought really nice that we kept at it. And a bit like Man United at the end of last season, where we just kept going and kept going and attacking and trying to get that equaliser at the end. I was really pleased. Really pleased for Theo, actually, because I thought he'd grown into the game. Yeah, and we never, we never gave up. And it was nice, I guess, to do something to, to a team, you know, that late, that late equaliser that we've seen so many times happen to us over the last couple of seasons. So, yeah, really, really pleased for Ralph and the, the team, particularly after the, the layoff and not having had much time to train together before the game. Indeed. Uh, all right. Well, a, a bit like we did previously with Martin, we've uh, a few different subjects to cover off with you um, during this discussion. To start with, Toby, it'd be good. I, I'm sure you know many Saints fans know you and have seen your face, and uh, obviously you've been around the club now. I think four and a half years or so. You've obviously worked the last three years as managing director of the club. So, from a personal point of view, Toby, what's the journey been like during that period? It's been really, really interesting. I, mean, I, I joined uh, originally as, as finance director in the season where we qualified. Europe. So we finished sixth, had a, um, a season obviously playing Europa League, which was you know, disappointing we didn't progress in that. And then ne- next couple of seasons were, were, were challenging, certainly finishing 17th and 16th. And the, the impact that's had on our, on our finances mm. has been you know, well, well documented and publicised, having seen you know, our accounts and, and our inability to sell certain players. So it's been really, really interesting. And, and football is, a, I think, a unique industry. I've worked in several others. And, you know, obviously the, the scrutiny for a business of our size is, is very different, um, but it's welcome and it, and it holds us you know, to account as certain topics I'm sure we might discuss today. Fans are the ones who truly, you know, are the owners of the club. We talk about us being, you know, custodians and, and, and passing through over a period of time. So I found it really enjoyable, uh, the, the fan forums we do and, and conversations such as these, a really good opportunity to, to hear about what the, the customers and and the fans really want. Mm. Um, yeah, it's been it's been thoroughly enjoyable. Really, really good fun. Yeah, brilliant. Um, if we start by focusing on finances and transfers, Toby, which uh, seems like uh, probably you spend your life talking about at the moment, but uh, we'll come on to talk about the transfer window specifically. But from a, a general finance point of view, Toby, what's it like being in charge of the purse string, so to speak, at a Premier League club these days? It's challenging. Uh, you know, I think even pre-pandemic, with our recent transfer record and difficulty in, in selling some of those assets, we were, we were certainly feeling, uh, feeling the pinch. Mm. With the pandemic and you know, the numbers are sort of out there now, which you know, we're, we're losing three million a month. Um, we've lost 22 million so far. These are, these are pretty big numbers and it does become harder to manage. You know, for us, getting fans back in the stadium is absolutely key. Yeah. Not only, you know, number one, because that's where they deserve to be watching the games, um, but you know, from a financial point of view, every game that is played behind closed doors, yes, we're in an amazing position with the broadcast income. And don't get me wrong, you know, compared to EFL clubs, we are in a far, far better position. But we are still losing a lot of money every game and every month, and it and it's very challenging. That we discussed previously with Martin, obviously the the sort of general uncertainty around the short and long term impact of coronavirus on businesses and their finances, as you say there, Toby, not just football but the wider world as as well. Given the the challenges it has already brought and probably will bring going forward, I suppose some of them will be unknown to all of us. Um, have you had to manage things in a slightly different way this year? You know, are you having more meetings with the teams and trying to analyse the figures and and sort of plug gaps and things like that, or is it just been sort of trying to do it as business as usual almost? Well, no, I mean, certainly when we did, our, we did our budget around June time, we had a look at all departments and all costs and said, we are absolutely, you know, looking at the, the essential spend this year. 
Um, and we are going to have to remove a lot of the nice to haves, which we've been able to do in previous years because we've been in a different financial position. But, you know, to give an example, we've always had our working capital facility um, ever since I've been at the club, which helps smooth out our cash flows over the peaks and costs of the year. And when the pandemic started, you know, we, we felt it prudent to, to increase our loan facility considerably because we it just didn't know what was going to be coming around the corner. Now, at the moment, that's proved to be helpful for us. It's giving us a good safety net, but that won't, that won't last forever. So, yes, we are having to do things differently in terms of you know, the run of the colour. Yeah, don't get me wrong, we haven't said things like, OK, the first team can't you know, fly to the north when we've got games up there. Not at all. We've got to do – we really want to ring fence – the elite side of the you know performance of the club and uh, you know the academy and the women's and girls teams we're doing everything as we can yep. but but maybe behind the scenes some of the things that we wanted to do this year and to continue developing either the stadium or some of our infrastructure we've had to put on pause and that's just being realistic that if the money isn't there to spend you can't spend it and you know well known that we we do try to be self-sustainable it's very very difficult at the moment um, we we don't have an owner that's putting money in again we've discussed that many times but we can't be in a position where we're spending money we don't have. That would not be, you know, make good financial sense for us. But yeah, not only fans not coming in, but we, you know, we can't do any conferences and events. Um, you know, no, no hospitality. So yes, yeah, for now, there's no change to our to our business model. We're running everything as normal. We're we're hopeful fans will come back just you know as soon as possible. But for now, we're not looking to change anything. I think if it goes on a lot longer and we're talking about you know beyond the end of the season which i don't think is the case then yeah of course we're going to have to look at the the overall impact on our finances and and, and what that means for us but but right now we've covered ourselves for the short term so with how we're running ourselves is fine you've mentioned the the loan facility and I, I understand why that's been increased to cover these sort of times that we're in but i mean i know a lot of people are worried you know they, they sort of worry when they see the headlines that we've got a 75 million pound loan and there's various stories about interest rates being high and all this sort of stuff um does it really mean that we're a sort of truly self-sustainable model um because i know we take um, out we take out these loans in normal seasons it's just something I'd yeah we do i mean yeah and, and the loan in the normal season um was sort of around the, the 30 million mark and yeah we always repaid that down at the end of the season and drew it down again sort of september october time when the um, when the finances or the cash flows from the Premier League um, meant that, that we had more cash going out and coming in. I think from a self-sustaining perspective, I don't think it, I don't think it necessarily changes it. And when we talk about that, I mean, that is as much to do with transfers than anything else. We still anticipate that being our model. We don't see a change to that. I think what we are seeing, though, is it becoming harder and harder to sell players, particularly outside of the Premier League. Yeah. Mm. And also, you know, the, the wages, this is, this is a real conundrum, I think, for clubs like us. You know, to be competitive in the Premier League, you need to be paying wages which are equivalent to your rival clubs. Otherwise, you don't get the player. Let's just, let's just be honest. Yep. But if, there comes a point where if that player is no longer in your plans, as we've seen with several, the market for them to go to or the, you know, the, the number of clubs that can afford those wages is limited. So we've seen that, you know, again, being honest with Hoots and Carrillo this year, sending sending them out on loan. We had inquiries for them from a number of clubs, but that was taking a small percentage of their wages. And we're just saying, well, we just can't have that situation mm. where we're paying two thirds of their wages. You know, financially for us, that's, that's really significant. So I think there needs to be a correction at some point within the wage market, because as I say, the, the number of clubs that can afford to take players on, particularly non-English ones um, or European ones who would tend to go back to Europe, 
isn't that big. Yeah, it seemed to happen about sort of 10 years ago that the mid-range sort of clubs in, I don't know, somewhere like France, suddenly the, the mid-range clubs in the Premier League, the wages that they paid seemed to seem to get ridiculous and and that totally killed those sorts of markets. And, and sometimes it seems strange that we, I mean, I, you never know the exact figures with wages, but we, we seem to pay more than some of the sort of relatively big Italian clubs, which... Yeah, you know. yeah, and and that is a, a definitely an unintended consequence of the Premier League broadcasting revenues. You know, we we obviously inquire, you know, with clubs across the window, and then get permission to talk to players. And some of the wage demands or requests for players, just the conversation stops there. Mm. And it and it is absolutely <laughs> a case when people say, okay, it's Premier League, whether it's the transfer fee or it's the wages. You know, people joke about, you know, adding zeros on the end. It is absolutely the case that, that there is a yeah. price for the Premier League and there is a price for everywhere else. Mm. And that is, I guess, made a bit of a rod for our own backs as a league. But to stay competitive within the league and then yeah. and then within Europe, that's that's what has to happen. You know, we could, of course, buy different players for less money and on lower wages. Would we still be competitive, though, is the, is the question. We've got to try, it's a very hard balancing act to do. You mentioned a couple of a uh, couple of players there, um, Hoyt and Carrillo, for example, Buffal as well. All three of them left the club sort of right at the end of the transfer window. Mm. With yeah, they all left for no fee, as far as we're aware, mm. maybe a, maybe a loan fee here and there. Whilst appreciating, you can't give too much away. Did it eventually turn out to be a case of just get them off the wage bill at any cost, or was it was there more to it than that? Yeah, I think to be honest with with Buffal and Carrillo, we had interest throughout the window, but not at anywhere near the level that we thought was, you know, their value. And, you know, let's take Mario Lamina. We took a view early in the window with him that the the offer that we had from Fulham, we maybe would have got a better deal by the end of the window, but that was one that we should take, we should take at that point. With other players, where the offer's coming in and you've still got six or eight weeks left of a window, it just wouldn't have made sense for us to, to accept something like that. Now, in hindsight, maybe we would have done, but... There comes a point where you have to make a stand, particularly when they're going overseas and just say, I'm sorry, we are not going to give in and basically just let people go for nothing and you're only making a contribution to their wages, which is what was being proposed. So yeah. um, we, we made a bit of a stand there. And yes, we got, well, they obviously got on free, so we're not, we're not paying any wages on Buffal and, and Carrillo. And Hoot, you know, he comes back to us next summer and we'll see what happens in terms of any interest for him. But yeah, the, the, the market this year, and I know I... I spoke about it last summer when we um, when we published our accounts. You know, we wanted to sell these players. The market just wasn't there for them. And if you look around Europe without, you know, who was actually buying anybody versus loans, it's just non-existent with the market being as it is. Yeah. yeah. And, and longer term, Toby, say over the next, I don't know, two, three years, how important do you think those decisions could prove in, I suppose, being able to invest finances where you need them most. You know, that might be securing key squad members to extended deals. At time of recording, there's obviously news in the, the press today about Danny potentially being close to signing a new contract, things like that. But also, of course, that, you know, the choppy waters of COVID you've got to think about as well. Yeah. And, you know, I think one of the things to be clear on, you know, our, our increased, you know, loan facility that we took out, that, that isn't a transfer fund. So that is to see us through yeah. what, what are, you know, challenging times now. And we expect to be, uh, for for a few more months, and then the the, the longer term consequences of the, sh- the short period of not having fans in the stadium. Um, for, for us, not getting transfer fees for those players who are you know effectively deemed surplus, it's something we've got to we've got to look at how we manage that because we've effectively bought replacements for those for those players. So you know, Danny, you could argue replacement for 
for Carrillo. Um, you know, we brought in Salasu and so on. You know, that we, we have had a net spend over the last two or three transfer windows. So that's for us to talk through with the owners around how we come through that. So again, I'm not sitting here saying to, to all the fans, you, you need to be aware that this is going to hit us significantly from our future, you know, ability to, to strengthen or, or reinforce the squad. It, it doesn't, but I think people just need to be mindful that there will be an impact. We don't know to what extent yet. And just to be, I, I suppose, accepting that, you know, we have got finite resources. We do, we try and stretch as much as we can, but without putting us in a perilous state financially. So, yes, this will have an impact. To what extent? That depends how long we have fans out of the stadium for. Yeah. And, and at the time of recording then, the, the summer transfer window has just closed for Premier League clubs, Toby. For those of us the fans that all see it as a bit of fun and, you know, we get too involved with Jim White and all those sort of things, how busy and stressful <laughs> is it for, for someone who, you know, is in your position as managing director? Because I guess trying to work with Martin and help knit deals together and Ralph on the phone, etc., etc., with the ins and outs, I, I can't imagine it's too much fun. Uh, it, it can be, actually. I think, you know, certain transfers go really smoothly from, from the start. The, the club, you know, give us permission to talk to the player. We come to a very easy agreement on the uh, on the transfer fee and the wages. Always have an argument with the agent that that's, um, that's accepted on, on their fee. And it happens quite smoothly. And, uh, and they just, you know, go across over the course of the week, no problems. I think there are others where, again, I, I mentioned it about the, the Premier League being seen as sort of the golden goose that they are more difficult and, and we always get there mm. you know when you're in the middle of it it can be stressful and a little disheartening when you think a player is worth x in terms of a price to buy and then their wages and, and the expectations are a lot higher but we always reach a solution not lost out too many times based on um them choosing to go elsewhere when we've, when we've agreed on terms so yeah the, the stress levels are there i think Myself and Martin and Martin Glover, um, Chief Scout and Head of Recruitment, work really well in that we split the, the load so it isn't all concentrated on one person. So generally, you know, Martin Glover, obviously, from the talent ID side, you know, identifies the shortlist. Ralph comes up with the one or two that he is really interested in, and that all happens a number of months ago. Martin Glover will generally make contact with the club. You know, Martin Simmons will then do similar. Uh, and then I'll tend to either talk to the to the player's agent and the club directly on the finer details of, you know, add-ons or, you know, bonuses for the player and wages. But, but we work as a team, so that takes some of the stress out because it's never just one person who's dealing with, with all elements. Yeah. Um, probably, you know, the Pierre and Kyle deals were, were pretty stressful because we combined the two together. So to some extent that worked quite well because we were able to trade, well, if you do this on Pierre, we might be able to do this on Kyle. And generally you don't have that leverage. So yeah. that, that was quite good but but it, i guess it doubled the stress level yeah i'm sure you've become uh, fairly thick-skinned you know the more you've dealt with agents and things like that toby but can we assume there's obviously been times where a saints manager i'm not just saying ralph because obviously you've been at the club longer than that as you know potentially wanted to sign a player and everyone recruitment you know etc etc all behind it it looks like the right player and then you know you've just simply had to be the the, the sort of sensible bad cop in the inverted commas because funds might not be there or as you mentioned earlier wages are unrealistic and i suppose having to go back with that message isn't always ideal yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I, I, I generally am the person that will, you know, maybe tell Martin and Martin that I'm sure this person will be a great addition to the squad. And, you know, I'll even have a look and say, yeah, this player is great, but we just cannot afford them. And we have to have that rigour and discipline that, again, it's not just one person who's saying 
yes to things. It goes through a process. And yeah, that will disappoint Ralph or whichever manager that we can't by player X. But, but they know when they join the club and when they're in the club where we are in terms of our financial position. Yep. And so it doesn't happen too often that, that we say outright no, because generally we shouldn't really get to that point because we should know what the player's general market uh, value is. So it, it doesn't happen that often. But yeah, it's, it's disappointing, but it, but it has to be done. With all the stuff you mentioned there, I think most people understand that concluding a transfer deal is, is not as simple as it is on Football Manager. Um, <laughs> I think a lot of people don't understand that. But anyway, um, what's the sort of feeling at the end of the day when you can sort of get a successful deal through, you know, the last day of transfer deadline with um, Theo's deal, for example? Yeah, it's, it's, it's great. You know, when you're so in the, the process of it and, the, you know, the final, it's, it's funny, the, the, the bigger parts of the deal, like, the transfer fee and the wages normally get done quite quickly. It's the little bits around, you know, add-ons for the club or the bonuses for the player for, you know, or, or increases based on appearances. Those are the bits which take a long time and you kind of get really into the detail. And then suddenly when it's done, yeah, there's a huge bit of relief. You know, obviously, you know, getting the medical done as well. At that point, when the medical is done, you go, okay, right, this is going to happen. Yeah, it's, it, it's great. And particularly when Ralph will have identified that this player will make a difference to the team. So, you have lots of people contacting us as a club saying, oh, I, you know, you've sold Pierre. What about, what about player X? What's really good about Ralph and you know, Martin Glover is they only want people that are going to make a difference. Um, there's lots of people you could take out there as a, a stopgap for a period. I mean, Theo is a great example. We wanted somebody to come in ready-made to help us you know, make a difference on the pitch. And I think he proved that mm. on Saturday. And yes, you know, people would say, well, that's a little bit different to your usual model of player but again felt we needed that experience to help on the pitch whether it's you know as he did on Saturday whether it's finishing games being around the squad and having that experience so yeah even you know getting someone in like Theo bringing him back to the club it's a great feeling but what matters most is that obviously the players then come on and do the job on the pitch and that's actually where you get the, the better feeling you know Theo coming on and performing particularly second half as he did that's when you get the okay this is really good you know Again, what we, we expect from Diallo and Salasu coming through again, it, that will be when the, the real sort of feeling of, um, you know, we've, we've made the right decision and this is all worthwhile will we'll come through. Yeah, and I think, as you say, with uh, Theo Toby, obviously we've heard Ralph's views on it and he's obviously performed well at Chelsea. I think all of us are starting to realise quite quickly that there's more than just a, a sort of sense of romanticism, I think is the words that I used on the, the podcast last weekend. But uh, look, I, I, I suppose just one of the things, because I, I know you're actively involved in it and I know that there was a lot of discussion about it. I don't necessarily want to dwell on it loads because, you know, the world's moved on for all parties. Um, obviously, we know that there were some challenges around trying to get Ibrahim Songari's uh, work permit through and... Uh, those sort of things. I, I suppose I was going to ask briefly about the frustration from a, a club point of view uh, about the red tape that got in the way. But just to sort of add on to that, obviously the positive was that the club were able to move very swiftly and secure Ibrahima Diallo. So does that just sort of reiterate that when you've got targets like Western McKenney and Sangare and Diallo now, etc., all researched and ready to go, that the recruitment is sort of heading in a, a much better direction than maybe it was a few years ago? Yeah, absolutely. There have been instances where yeah, going back a number, a number of years, some transfers haven't followed that process. But Martin Glover and his team have a continue, you know, a list of players. And, and let's, you know, let's be clear: Diallo wasn't. Uh, oh, Sangard didn't come through. Let's who, who do we go to next? You know, he's somebody that we've been tracking. And if it wasn't this window, it could well have been, you know, in in the future. 
Um, so yeah, it's frustrating the red tape. I mean, we're, the, the, the Premier League and the FA are working closely actually with Brexit coming in in January to have a much more defined criteria around non-British players coming into the country where, you know, mm. a points-based system where the appeals panel will, will most likely disappear. And in fact, we'll never get to that position again with Sangar because we will know, okay, he's played this number of games for his uh, for the selling club, international appearances, uh, what what ranking that his home nation has, tot up the points, will he get in or won't he? Right, yeah. yes, we can yes we can go and pursue him or not. So we're in this transition period where we know that's coming, but we didn't have that for that deal, which is yeah disappointing. But I understand why you know the government and the FA have have those rules in place to stop the market being flooded. It, it doesn't seem to be an issue in other. Um, European countries where the rules are far more relaxed, but these are the rules we have here, and we've got to, we've got to work within them. So hopefully, yeah, we won't have a repeat of that sort of thing in the future. Mm. So overall, would you say there's a sense around some areas now that we've come out the window in uh, better shape with a better balance to the squad than we went into it? Uh, yeah, a- absolutely. And you know, I'd be really disappointed if that if that wasn't the case. You know, we, we only want to bring in, as I said, people who are going to strengthen. Um, the squad. I think we've strengthened in those areas that we identified and was very public that we need to. You know, right back, Kyle performed really well at the back end of the last season. You know, those final final games, he was fantastic and has, has picked that up again, certainly, you know, the last couple of games. Um, we knew that Pierre was going to go. We needed that centre midfielder. And again, centre back was an area that we, and lots of other, you know, people, fans were saying that we need to, to strengthen there. And looking forward to seeing Salisu come in. So we got all those areas done. And then Theo was some strength going forward, particularly where we've had a few injuries, you know, with Gineppo, Stewart's had a couple of injuries, actually having that strength in depth. We don't want to block Nathan Teller's progress. You know, again, came on on Saturday, did really well to help close out the game. But it's about making sure that we've got that strength in depth, players that, that can give Nathan that experience, Nathan Teller, and, you know, and, and push, push players. So that yeah. you know that, that's that's what we want in in all positions. So I wouldn't give us a ten out of ten like the four percent did, um, <laughs> Glenn, on your uh, on your poll, but but maybe a, maybe a nine and a half. No, I, you know, I think we um, work really hard this transfer window. You know, it's been a difficult one given the um, given the market. Getting getting players sold has been unbelievably difficult. Mm. So yeah, it's been frustrating that we didn't get fees for Buffal or Carrillo. But the next best thing was get, yeah. getting their wages off the books, which we've done. We've worked hard and I'm, I'm pleased with where we've ended up in terms of the, the, the squad. It feels like it's taken it forward, which is ultimately the, the aim. Yeah. Yeah. It seems to me like it's been to a plan, yeah. which is not always been the case in the past. Sometimes it seemed a bit random in the past, but yeah, it does see, it does seem to have been to a plan this time around, which is, uh, hopefully going to be good news. Look, we shouldn't underestimate Matt Crocker's role in this as well, which is, he is coming in and looking at the, the three to five year plan on the transfer and saying, okay, look, we've got a, you know, standing under 18 here. Let's make sure what we do in the transfer market. So working closely with Martin Glover saying, okay, whoever we might bring in in that player's position, we cannot stifle this, this individual here because they're going to be ready in three years time. Mm. And actually really joining up that recruitment plan, which I'm not sure we've, we've done to the, to the level we maybe should have done in the past. It certainly it happened, but really having this joined up process. And that'll take a bit of time to get, to get in place, but that's what we want. We need to make sure that you know the significant investment we're making in the academy see that come to fruition. Yeah. 
One, one door closes, Toby. You take a sip of coffee, you put it down on your desk, another challenge opens. Um, pay-per-view, of course, uh, moving on to that is one of the, the hot topics uh, around at the moment for uh, maybe good and bad reasons. Uh, of course, it's involved Premier League uh, and uh, its clubs. Um, I know Glenn's got a few questions uh, in a bit more specific details, which I, I know you've said you're happy to talk about, and we're very grateful for that. But just from a, a club point of view, can you kind of just give us a bit of a, a, a sort of snapshot of maybe why the decision was to vote yes to the introduction of pay-per-view matches in the end? Yeah, sure. I mean, we it, it came a bit out of the blue for us, so we um, it, it was needed. A very quick decision was needed on that Premier League call. Um, the broadcasters needed a you know only had a week's lead into our Chelsea game, which was the first pay per view. And on balance, when faced with two choices, either the games go on television and they're on pay per view, or they don't get shown at all. Our view was well, it's the lesser of two evils to go with the um, the pay per view option. It was a really, really difficult decision, and, and, and right up until the point when it was our turn to vote, Martin and I were sort of messaging each other saying, you know, do we think this is the right thing? We absolutely accepted the risks that it will push more people onto streams, mm. uh, illegal streams, um, but on balance, we felt that we're giving people the opportunity to watch the game. That surely has to be better than no opportunity at all. And therefore, on balance, we felt saying yes was the right decision, but we're hugely conflicted about it. And, and I know uh, the price is very, very contentious. And mm. I <laughs> keep reading the broadcasters saying it's the Premier League who set it and the Premier League saying it's the broadcasters. Again, all I can say is what we were told was what we're voting for is do we do this or not? And the broadcasters set the price. So mm. I know people don't like the £15. Uh, I've heard lots of different prices banded around. I think one thing we would say is if it went below £10, which is... I hear a lot of people saying now we have the EFL on our back straight away, given that the iFollow price is £10. So, mm. yeah, we can debate whether the 15 is right, whether it should be 10, 11, 12, less than that. But, yeah, that, that's the background as to why we said yes. But a very, very difficult decision and, and not one we took lightly at all. Yeah, I mean, were the clubs surprised at the backlash? Um, not really. I think it was an accepted outcome. For us and, and for all clubs, the key is to get fans back in stadiums. When the decision was taken at the beginning of this season to show all games on Sky and BT for no additional subscription price, that was done 100% on the basis that everybody thought we were going to have fans back in the stadium either back end of September or early October. Yep. And from all of the meeting, the Premier League meetings that we were in, where you know, like test event, you know, Brighton did their test event, got to get your test event um, request in quickly because once you know if you, if you don't do that you know you'll miss out on the opportunity to suddenly the government saying okay we're not going to have any more test events and we're having no fans in the stadium that was the thing that came as the the surprise mm. and whether again in hindsight that should have been or not we, we can debate that but it was never the intention as i understand it that all games would be shown for people's existing subscription and i think I understand the frustration of fans, which is you, I, I've had something within my current subscription price, and now that's being taken away. And I don't. People use the word, "Oh, I had it for free." Well, people didn't have it for free. You had to subscribe to Sky and BT. Mm. Now, even if they don't have Sky or, or BT as a subscription, they can still get to see that game. So, no, I don't think people were surprised by it. But if we know what we know now, which is fans will still not be in the stadium, I think a different decision would, might have been taken at the beginning of the season. Yeah, I don't think anyone's arguing that, you know, having the games available, I don't think anyone's arguing about that. It's just the price of it. I mean, has 
Has there been any sort of subsequent meetings since the decision was made, um, you know, with the Premier League as a whole to discuss the sort of backlash or the, I guess, the, the figures for, you know, take up on pay-per-view are only just becoming available? Um, is there any sort of plan to review the decision going forward? I'm sure there will be. I mean, we had a, we had a Premier League meeting on Thursday, which was was more around project big picture than, than pay-per-view. Pay-per-view did come up. And yeah, I think clubs would like to know what the viewing figures are and to, you know, to see what the uptake is uh, and obviously monitoring the sentiment. So that's something that the Premier League will be doing. And when I think there was a view is we won't look at the first weekend because you've got to look at it over a sustained period of time to see whether there's an appetite there for it and see what the, what the uptake is. So yeah, I'm certain it, it will be reviewed after several weeks in terms of you know, viewing figures. One thing that's not been made sort of like abundantly clear about it is how the the money that you pay towards it is being distributed. Um, I'm thinking particularly in terms of if you take the normal clubs that are shown on Sky and BT and whatnot, we're not one of mm. those. So we're more likely to be on the pay-per-view platform than on normal Sky and BT. So if a Saints fan pays 15 quid to watch a game, is a sort of like vast proportion of that going to... Saints, or is it going into a big pot that's going to be divided equally between the 20 clubs or whatever? How does the actual, and, and obviously some so, of it will so go, that, go to the broadcaster. How yeah, does that so, work? so an element is going to the broadcaster. I don't know exactly what percentage. At the meeting when pay-per-view was proposed, the Premier League talked about it all going into one pot and potentially being distributed on a merit basis. So in other words, it just gets added on to the domestic broadcasting income and gets split that way. And, and there was a discussion there about whether that was the right thing to do, uh, because, again, Man United versus whoever may get 350,000 people watching and we might get 50,000. So is that right for that to happen? The decision in that meeting was to park the revenue share from a club perspective point of view, because it really the decision was needed. Was it going to be pay-per-view or not? I mean, we started to get sidetracked around how money might be distributed or how money might not get distributed and might flow down into the EFL, for example. So on the basis of time, it was decided to, to part that once a bit more research had been done around viewing figures and so on. And then well, the Premier League will come up with some proposals and we will discuss. So long way of saying, I don't know at the moment. OK, moving on to um, Project Big Picture, which we know has um, kind of died a death a little bit for now. It's been reported that Saints were one of the clubs who showed their dissatisfaction about it. I personally found it interesting to um, hear us mentioned as one of the uh, big nine. It's the first time I've ever heard of a big nine. Uh, <laughs> well, it's, a new, it's a new thing now. We're going to take it and run with it. Yes, absolutely. It'll be all over the brand on TV. Yeah, we're one of the big nine. Merchandise, <laughs> Marketing are working on it right now. <laughs> yeah. But whilst that was uh, mildly amusing, um, equally worrying, you know, the whole concept as, as a fan didn't seem uh, didn't seem particularly great. Do you think this is something that needs to be looked at, the overall Premier League model? And uh, how would you anticipate that happening going forward? Because it's obvious that this thing was driven by, um, well, we all know them. We don't need to mention them on here, the two clubs. But uh, how would you see this being revisited in the future? Because it's uh, doubtlessly going to be. So the Premier League, going back sort of six or nine months ago, talked about, having a strategic review of the Premier League and football in general about I guess, you know, the financial uh, situation of the EFL and our role in that. So that got put on hold when the pandemic broke out because, as I'm sure people understand, there were quite a lot of decisions and 
topics that needed discussing and um, taking forward that meant that that strategic review got put on the back burner. So what Project Big Picture has done is probably brought some of those topics back to the forefront. I think the, the financial model of the whole of the football pyramid, yes, does need looking at. Now, I'm, I'm not necessarily advocating that the Premier League gives more money to the EFL, uh, but I think a review of the current financial structure is definitely needed. And that is one of the good things that comes out of that Project Big Picture document, because it talks about you know the, the, the share of TV revenues, that there'd be a combined selling of TV rights rather than it being you know, split as it currently is. So I think all of that, great, and have no issues at all with doing something which makes our football pyramid more stable. But anything which makes the Premier League less competitive, yeah. as a club, we just don't see any merit in that whatsoever. You know, why would we vote for something that gives some clubs the ability to earn more revenue to, to be consistently in Europe, mm. and therefore our ability to, to break into that disappears? Other leagues around Europe and the world look at the Premier League with envy because it's so competitive. Uh, you know, we can go to Chelsea, who've obviously spent a lot in the summer, and get a 3-3 draw. Mm. Um, you know, Villa can beat Liverpool. Why would you want to take that away, particularly when we're trying to sell, you know, we will be coming up to selling broadcasting rights in not too distant future and trying to maximise those? Why would you make it a closed shop and also make clubs, you know, coming up from the, from the championship putting them at a disadvantage. So we have no appetite whatsoever to vote for anything that makes it less attractive, less competitive, that you know, couldn't give our fans another opportunity to, to get into to Europe again. So, yeah, yeah. It, it was disappointing the way I think it came out in the public. We didn't know anything about it. You know, joking aside, nobody's even spoken to us about whether we would or wouldn't have been one of those nine clubs. So, yeah, disappointing that talks had gone on behind the the backs of the Premier League in particular, that they weren't passed to that and the EFL were. But yeah, you've seen the reaction from both clubs and supporters that um, there isn't an appetite for a lot of those things to be taken forward. But let's, let's be clear, there are, there are some elements of it which do need addressing, particularly the financial um, state of the game in, in the lower leagues. Yeah, it's, it's refreshing to hear you uh, say that. I think, Toby, for Glenn, I can't talk for Glenn, but for other Saints fans, I think it's nice to know that that's the club's view on that, uh, probably. Um, just before we finish up then, Toby, of course, if you didn't have enough on your plate already, um, the club have had to oversee this summer a change of main partner and a traditional now uh, replica shirt issue, Toby. <laughs> um, a, a statement was put out recently by Saints about it all, which, uh, among other things, outlined, um, quote, the club is pleased to confirm that supporters who have already purchased a 2020-21 shirt with LD Sports on the front will be able to claim a complimentary updated replacement will also be able to keep the original shirt as a gesture of the club's gratitude for their patience but it also included the line around uh, in order to get the shirts remade as quickly as possible the club's technical partner Under Armour have kindly granted the club permission to replicate the shirts via a third party provider as a result the shirts will be the exact replica of the playing shirts worn by Ralph Hasenhutl's first team but without Under Armour branding. Um, Dan, friend of the show, wrote a piece about it in The Athletic a couple of weeks ago. I'm sure many Saints fans will have read that. But from the horse's mouth, so to speak, Toby, how much of a logistical challenge has all this become? Because I suppose, you know, again, it's trying to find an overall solution that works, trying to work with Under Armour, I suppose understanding why they weren't necessarily involved. And just finally, how satisfied are you with the kind of position you found yourself in now? Yeah, so I mean, to the Under Armour one, first of all, they were really willing to um, to help. The thing we've got to understand with Under Armour is it's a, you know, a large global manufacturing business with commitments all over the world for 
you know, making replica kit and training wear. So to find a slot at short notice where they could reproduce the kit was just unfortunately not something that was unrealistic. So it wasn't that they weren't willing, quite the opposite. Mm. But it just the timing when we you know wanted the kit to be ready by it, it wasn't something that unfortunately they were able to to meet. But that's as I say, that's due just to their to their scheduling of all their other commitments. So they were really happy to let us explore using a third party. The quality is exactly the same. So yeah, they've they've tested it and seen samples and they're comfortable. So it's been frustrating that we have another season with a kit process challenge, but I'm pleased with the way the team have, have dealt with it because not only do we need to find a new, a new front of shirt sponsor, but yeah, the logistics around getting that kit produced, samples being seen, again, going out to the market and making sure we get the right price um, or tenders from a number of suppliers was, a, was another challenge. But the team have um, done really well. We've got their, the, the order's been placed. So yeah, it's, it's disappointing. It's frustrating somewhat out of our hands, you know, due to, you know, the, the impacts of the pandemic and the impact that had on LD Sports. Yeah, please we've managed to find a solution. I'm, I'm really hopeful that next season um, <laughs> we have no uh, no challenges whatsoever. I'm not, I'm not sure what some of our, our retail team will do, though, mind you, for a, for a little bit of time if that happens. But, um, yeah, look, I'm pleased we managed to get something in place. It is absolutely frustrating and it hits us hardest because from a financial perspective, but I guess a little bit from a reputation point of view as well, it, it doesn't look great, but some things you know, are out of our control and we do everything we can to, to make the best of a bad situation. Just briefly, Toby, for anyone that's listening that's maybe waiting on a replica shirt, I think the quote or the, the Paradise scene was that they should hopefully be due or available or redistributed by December. So as, as we stand at the moment, we're recording, what, mid-October? That's still sort of on track, is it? Yeah, absolutely. Finally, on the shirt uh, sponsor um, side of things then, I mean, do you see the last couple of years, you know, again, joking aside, it's obviously taken a lot of time and effort. And we know you've obviously and you, your teams have obviously been grilled for it. And I'm sure there's lots of emails and tweets and all those sort of things. But have you kind of taken learnings from those two years to make sure these sort of things don't happen again? Or is it literally been two anomalies that just you couldn't plan for in, in hindsight? Um, going back last season, LD Sports as a sponsor came in relatively late. And, you know, we had to then embellish the Under Armour shirt that had already been made. And unfortunately, the company that we chose that we used before, it, you know, it just needed redoing. And so, yes, that was 100% Saints. One of those things that if we'd have made that decision or LD Sports had come in a bit earlier, a couple of months earlier and embellished earlier, nobody would have even known because we'd have been able to do that behind the scenes. Our decision on who we chose, but I see that as a bit of a, a, a one-off. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what would we learn from that, which would okay, what testing may we do on the shirts, but we had a, a very short period of time to do that. I think this year, learnings around LD Sports, you know, they're not being on the, uh, the main sponsor and, and then having to change the logo. Yep. That's a really difficult one because I think there's been some unfair criticism of them as an organisation and, and the club to some extent because almost as if, well, firstly, they were connected to Mr. Gao, mm-hmm. fundamentally not true, or, or, or Lander. Um, or that, you know, we just sort of chose them on a whim. You know, David Thomas and I, you know, David is our chief commercial officer. We went out to Taiwan, we met them, we saw, you know, we were in their offices, saw their production studios, we saw that it was going on. And we did the same process for LD Sports as we did with anybody else. Mm. Now, yes, they were a startup organization, you know, wealthy backers, and we were part of that growth strategy for them. And, you know, the pandemic has hit them hard because, you know, integral to that was the, the content that they could they could deliver and where there were no games for a prolonged period of time, you know, that hit their business model. So, you know, in terms of 
what learnings would we do? I mean, you could say, well, should we ever go with a you know with a startup? But you know, we had a chance to help launch a new product in a growth market, which would have been really or potentially really exciting for us as a club. So I don't want to say you know we're always going to take the conservative option because that isn't I don't think what we are as a club and some of the things that we've done in the past and some of the initiatives that we do, I think that would be quite boring. So, yeah, in, in hindsight, it's not worked out with LD Sports. I'm not sure we would change our decision going back to that point, knowing what we know now we might do, but, but at the time it was the right decision. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's hugely frustrating, but, you know, the pandemic has changed so much of what goes on in everybody's businesses. Um, with hindsight, we would have done a number of things differently. Mm. Finally, Toby, while there's more to Southampton than what happens on the pitch, how optimistic are you personally about what Ralph and the team can deliver during the remainder of 2021 season? I I feel really optimistic. Uh, I know we had a a bit of a shaky start, first couple of games, but now we've got this final squad in place and they've all got an opportunity to to train day in, day out. Um, I feel, you know, really optimistic about our opportunity. Now, what does that mean? I'm not, you know, I'd love us, of course, to be, getting back to where we were four or five years ago and pushing for that European spot. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But I, I think if we can give that good, consistent performance that we have done, you know, for the last three games, continue to, to push up, you know, if we can get a couple of places higher, uh, I'm not saying that that's, you know, we're going to accept that. We want to continue to improve every year, but I think can perform more consistently this year than we did than we did last year. Another season under Ralph, you know, the players know him better and better and he knows the players so yeah i feel as we you know sit here today really optimistic for the for the rest of the season good stuff well toby it's been great to talk to you in this second red and white insight life inside our club glenn and i are very grateful to you for your time and uh, your honest answers so very much appreciated i'm sure fans listening will be as well and um, obviously we look forward to catching up with you again at some point during the season i think most importantly all of us would wish you good luck off the field with all the challenges that are probably around the corner Oh, thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. And keep up the good work with the pod. It's a really enjoyable listen. This is the Total Saints Podcast. Proudly underpinned by our TSP patrons. A big thanks again to Toby for his time. Hopefully you found it an interesting listen. We'll have our next Red and White Insight during November. Now, before we finish up, a look ahead to Saints' visit to Aston Villa next weekend in another game available to you via pay-per-view if you want it. More on that in a minute. Dan, someone once said football is a funny old game. Um, I'm sure it's uh, full of ifs and buts, but in the very first game post-lockdown, of course, Villa played Sheffield United. It eventually finished 0-0, but there was a ghost goal by the Blaze that clearly crossed the line but wasn't given. Um, Arguably... That would have sent Aston Villa down. Now you look at them. Of course, they're coming off the back of the uh, defeat to Leeds, but they're uh, flying high in the Premier League. It's a funny old game. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that decision not to award a goal was just mind-boggling, really. Well, I mean, what was what happened? Did his watch stop working, or the technology went down for a minute or two, or something? Wasn't there players in? There was in players in totally convenient positions that every camera was covered. I think Steve, wasn't that right? Yeah, I think there's there's basically six cameras. I think that cover the that covered that part of the goal and basically because there were people kind of bundled all around that post it just lo- it just completely completely screwed up yeah yeah um absolute mess mm. um but surely i mean var could have just looked i mean you literally only had to see one replay it's like well yeah that's clearly gone gone yeah. a yard <laughs> over the line I know, it's I know. But it, uh, but yeah, Dan. I mean, it does, it does sort of show how funny football can be. Because as I say, they might have been in the championship, and yet now they're flying high. Exactly, and they had a good summer as well, didn't they? I mean, 
I mean, whether anyone was going to pay that sort of money for Jack Grealish or not, who knows? But you know, they got him on a, a long-term deal. They got Ollie Watkins from Brentford, who come in and done well already. Mm-hmm. They got, you know, I, I like Villa. You know, I was really impressed when I went. I know Saints won last year in December, didn't they, at Villa Park? Yep. Um, that was my first trip to Villa Park, and you know, I thought the fans there were excellent. You know, it was a I think the game, I mean, it was dark when they were playing it towards the end and you know, the atmosphere was still brilliant. I like the manager. He seems like a, a decent bloke. And, you know, they got Ross Barkley as well from Chelsea on loan, which looks to be a shrewd signing. Obviously, Matt Target, you know, I'm sure Southampton fans will want to see him doing well. Mm-hmm. Tyrone Mings at the back, you know, I think he's a, is a good defender. So, yeah, it, it's strange, you know, but you got to take... You know, when you get that bit of luck, you've got to take it and make the most of it. And I think they certainly have. Yeah. I remember Walsall coming to us on the last game of the uh, League One season and Dean Smith was their manager then and all the Walsall fans were singing Ginger Mourinho. So, uh, Steve, as Dan mentioned there, obviously Villa spent a fair bit last summer on uh, recruiting new players. Ollie Watkins, Bertrand Torre, Emiliano Martinez, Matty Cash and Ross Barkley all joined the Villa ranks. Barkley being the only loan, of course, the rest of them coming in on a permanent basis, probably somewhere in the region of about 80 million I worked out at uh, using uh, various uh, reports and things like that. What do you make of those acquisitions overall? Well, I mean, the results suggest it's, uh, they've, they've done some very smart business, unlike the business they did last summer. I think, I mean, they've, they've had a change of director of football, so the... The kind of ethos of what they're trying to sign has changed, and I think also having having that, had that year up, they're now theoretically a relatively stable club, and they they know that they're they've got a year's uh, Premier League payments under their belt, and they're going to have another one. Um, so that gives you a little bit more freedom, a little bit more certainty, and it just makes you more attractive. I think you, I mean, I mean, let's face it, there's absolutely no chance that they would have signed Ross Barkley this time last year. Absolutely no way, and and yet he is a he. I mean, I I I don't think he's a player that can really do it at the top level. But I think for a for a mid mid table team, he's an outstanding signing, and he will be the difference in the centre of midfield um, for Villa in a number of games. He will. I mean, as as you as you've seen in in that Liverpool game, he was. He was extraordinary in that game, and this this is a guy that probably had what two trading sessions with that with that set of players, yeah. and he and he was outstanding, and he's he's capable of doing that on occasion. The reason why he's not playing every week for Chelsea is because he doesn't do it often enough. But he'll he'll do enough for Villa to I mean they'll I, I find it very hard to believe they'll be in any any sort of trouble um, this season now. Yeah, yeah, and no, I'd agree with that. And uh, Dan, as you sort of mentioned, last season Saints obviously did the double over Villa, uh, including that 3-1 pre-Christmas victory up at Villa Park. It's three wins and two draws in our last five visits there, so generally been a, a sort of recent happy hunting ground. Um, as I mentioned, Leeds have obviously gone there and beaten them 3-0 this weekend. Do you think Saints can go there and sort of win again, or do you think they are a, a harder prospect? And I suppose the add-on question I would ask to that, bearing in mind we know Ralph is very meticulous in his approach, do you think Leeds going there and sort of turn them over will actually help Ralph with some of his work uh, in preparation for that? No, I think Southampton have just beaten the league leaders. I don't think there's any reason whatsoever why they shouldn't go there and beat Aston Villa. You know, as Steve mentioned, you know, they've had a obviously a brilliant start to the season. And then, as you've just said, they were found out by Leeds and Patrick Bamford scored a hat-trick. Um, and I'd argue, you know, Southampton's attack is slightly better than Leeds' attack. So what was it? So I can't, off the top of my head, I don't know the statistic, but I think you mentioned earlier, you know, Southampton have lost two games in their last... Well, 12 quite a lot. 13 now, I think. Yeah, 12 yeah. or 13 games. So, you know, they're... They've clearly got momentum on their side. You know, they all know their roles. They know what they're doing. Ralph Hasenhut and all the analysts will, you know, be sort of doing their homework this week. And the fact that, you know, there's going to be, I don't know, it's essentially there's no no fans now. So, the 
you know the Villa Park crowd won't be there. So no, I I truly think that they should go there, and you know I'd be more surprised if they didn't win. To be honest, I can't see them losing yeah. next week for sure. Yeah. That's good. And uh, obviously we've mentioned their ability going forward, Steve. Um, the likes of particularly Jack Grealish, I think, remains a, a wonderful talent to all of us um, as a neutral when he's on the ball. And of course, you know he's starting to take that into international level now. But as Dan sort of mentioned there Steve you know at the back I suppose the back four subject to injury suspension is probably going to be Matt Cash Concert Tyrone Mings and of course ex-Saint Matty Target so famous last words it does feel like you know they are a back four and you know the keeper's decent we know that but a back four that Saints can very much get at yeah I mean obviously Concert Mings and Target were their starting back four for the vast majority of last season and they were rubbish so um, adding adding into the mix uh, the the lad who was who's been right back for Nottingham Forest for the last three or four years, I don't think necessarily strengthens their hand that much. But the signing of the goalkeeper does because I mean Mar- Martinez could have stayed at Arsenal. To be honest, I can't. I based on his performances since um, after because Len- Leno obviously got injured first game back in um, in down the restart yep. down at Brighton, and Martinez um, obviously played all the way through that and was brilliant. Yeah, I agree. And yeah. And you kind of think, well, this this seems seems ridiculous. This is a lad that you've had on your books for at least ten years. You you finally got him into a position where he's where he's good enough and senior enough to be a first choice goalkeeper, and you've more or less gone and given him away. I was surprised when he left. I was surprised they let him go. Oh, absolutely, like you, absolutely, yeah. absolutely staggered. It's, it's it was an extraordinary sale, um, mm. particularly for the price. Mm. Because it was pretty cheap. I think it was about 13 million, wasn't it? Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Um, so, what, a similar price that we've paid for Angus Gunn. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I find that find that strange. But it, it kind of shows that Villa's, Villa's transfer strategy and actually the way that they're targeting certain players in certain positions has come on leaps and bounds in the last 12 months. And they knew that the goalkeep, goalkeeping position was an issue. Tom Heaton, I don't think is... I think he's still not fit. They were obviously... They didn't want to go in with um, the uh, was it Norgard, is it? The yeah, they let him go this week, didn't he? he? Left on a free, I think. Yeah, the guy who was the guy who was terrible last, the one, well, the one who threw it in his net and got away with it. <laughs> and obviously, Rayner was only on loan. Yeah. So they had they had to get a goalkeeper anyway. Mm. So if you're going to spend money on a goalkeeper, you might as well upgrade on the first choice. You might as there's no no point buying players as squad fillers. I don't think. So I, I think. He's a he's a he's going to be a great signing for them, and I think just such just such a huge and obvious upgrade on what they had before. Agreed, and he's only 28, I think, which is surprising when you think, as you say, how long he's been around. But uh, yeah, certainly uh, um, it'll be an interesting challenge, I think, for for Saints, uh, as Dan said, with their pace going forward and that sort of thing. Just finally, then, Dan. Based on the Everton result, you know, it's three wins and a draw for Saints now in the last four. Important for the, the team, and Ralph will know this and the players will know this, to, to keep that momentum going and try and, you know, stretch this unbeaten run as long as they can. Absolutely. Um, you know, with another international break coming up as well, you always want to try and take some positive form into that. Um, so everyone sort of goes away with their national teams all happy. And I think, you know, an important thing to sort of say about Saints is you'd like to think that there's more to come in the sense of, you know, Theo Walcott wasn't playing today, wasn't able to be on the bench, you know, so there's another good option there. You know, Diallo came on. Okay, he was only on for a few minutes, but he looked quite lively. You know, you'd like to think he's only going to get better. You've obviously got Salasu, you know, when he's ready to, to come into the squad. So I think there are plenty of reasons to be positive at the moment. I must admit, you know, I sort of had my 
heart in my mouth when Kyle Walker-Peters went down and stayed down because then you're thinking, well, bloody hell, you know, if, if they lost him, I think Valerie picked up an injury for the B team, then I mean, then you're looking very exposed at the back and, you know, who do you put there? You have to take Prowse out, probably, maybe, yeah, yeah. put him at right back. But no, I think, you know, there's so much to be positive about at the moment. Let's hope they can continue and have some something else to talk about positive next Sunday night. Indeed. Right, just before we do our predictions, the Villa game will once again be available for £14.95 via the Premier League's pay-per-view offering. Now, everyone has their own independent view on pay-per-view, of course, including us here at the pod. Um, however, should you be in the I refuse to pay that camp, then some Saints fans on Not 606 have come up with a great alternative way to part with your £14.95 and benefit the people of Southampton who could use it most. Inspired by the recent Newcastle PPV protests, which saw them raise £20,000 for a local food bank in the city, some Saints fans are hoping to do similar. You can donate your £14.95, or more if you'd like to, to City Catering in Southampton, who feed adults and children in need of improved nutrition, health and or well-being. A great cause and a great initiative by Mark and the Not 606 subscribers, as I mentioned. To access and or donate some money, you can go to justgiving.com forward slash say no to PPV. So that's justgiving.com forward slash say no to PPV. And when I looked earlier, I think they'd raised almost a £1,000 before we started recording. So tremendous effort by everyone there. As I say, Saints are doing well. People may decide that they now want to pay it. But if you don't want to pay it, but you do still want to give your money to a great cause, then why not look that up? You'll see all the details. And as I said earlier, should you wish to donate that, it will all be going to City Catering in Southampton. And I'm sure they'd be incredibly grateful for your money. Okay, let's do some Villa versus Saints predictions. As Glenn isn't here, we'll do his first because I got it offline. Um, He's gone for Saints to win 2-1 2-1 and to be fair to Glenn he said that before the Everton game as well so he was uh, even more positive um, Steve what are you thinking yeah I, th- I think we're going to win as well I think yeah, I, I'm kind of kind of edging towards a high scoring one again although I, I said I know I said that ahead of this weekend and Everton's Everton were just completely impotent but um, so yeah, I'm going to go for the, I'm going to go for the same again and hope it has the same effect uh, yeah. so a 3-2 Saints win 3-2 Saints win brilliant alright Dan what about you I was going to go 2-1, but I'll go 3-1 instead, Southampton. 3-1 win, brilliant. All right, and uh, I've got some nice momentum building now, so I'm going to go for Villa to win 1-0. All You're listening to the Total Saints podcast, going to the heart of all things Saints FC. Thank you for listening to this week's TSP. A big thanks also to Dan, Steve, Glenn, and of course, Saints Managing Director, Toby Steele. Patrons, as I mentioned at the start, hopefully you can join our get-together on Thursday at 8 o'clock UK winter time. Steve, Glenn, Dan, and myself will all be in attendance. If you need any further details and or have any questions you'd like considered during the event, then please just let me know either via the Patreon inbox or Total Saints Podcast at yahoo.com. Otherwise, we'll be back after next weekend's game up at Villa Park. Until then... Have a good few days off. Keep looking at that Premier League table, Saints fans. And as always, keep marching in.
away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximize your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable. Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely and control vehicle at all times. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.